Tigneault's Flaming Fish performance models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. This is Atomic Mama. Listen up every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. for Blue Hill Blues, where I'll be spinning vaudeville to down home to uptown blues and everything in between. That's Blue Hill Blues, Tuesdays, 2 to 4 p.m. Join me, Atomic Mama, for Blue Hill Blues here on WERU. 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and at WERU.org. We are you. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock in the morning here down East Main anyway. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and uh, all around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your Rusty anchors Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, two old downwind sailors who uh, may be tactless, but then again, we may be jibing you too. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wait just on the edge of my seat for the opening pun. You know, I have nothing to do with it. I would like to disclaim, and that was a good one. <laughs> so... Um, we have a variety of issues, little small things to get to before we get to our main subject, which is going to be Hank Halstead. It's going to be fun talking to Hank. But yeah. um, you want to go first with the local news? Yep. Our friend Hank has uh, lived a uh, great life around boats and a lot to talk to there. We also uh, would like to acknowledge Tom Groning this morning. He is in the studio here from the Working Waterfront, the editor of the Working Waterfront, and Doing a story about boat talk. Good morning, Tom. That's right. I've been listening to you guys ramble on for all these years and thought it'd be fun to come watch you do the show. A no-brainer, as they <laughs> say. 
See the, uh, see the floundering firsthand. Yeah, as I was also uh, just uh, talking to Tom, he's on a long list of people that it's a no-brainer we ought to be talking to and have been thinking about for a long time. Yeah. Uh, working waterfront is a very interesting uh, operation part of the uh, uh um, bigger organization there? The Island Institute. Island Institute, thank you. Yeah. And has just changed uh, Helmsman after... Uh, after 30 years, that's right. Philip Conkling and Peter Ralston started it 30 years ago, and uh, they both retired recently. And we have a new president named Rob Snyder, and, and kind of looking at uh, the issues that we, we get involved with in new ways, and uh, very much in the things that are in the news. Um, mentioned the story about the ocean acidification, we had testimony yesterday at the legislature about that bill, so we're very much involved in contemporary issues. Right. Um, you're going to be having a, um, a not-open-to-the-public workshop on Thursday on ocean acidification. We'd like to hear the, some of the results from that, too, so um, we'll put that on, on our, our next boat talk. But ocean acidification is a, a real a symptom we're having here um, uh, Unfortunately, another one we're going to be talking about quickly, too, is dead mud has just come up in the Bangor Daily. We have told Tom he can uh, uh, chip in at any point sitting here. You might as well uh, speak up if you're interested. Now, uh, a couple little news items here we like to uh, clear the deck before we get talking to uh, uh, the main subject today. And we uh, told you about the shrimp moratorium last year. Heard another interesting fact about the shrimp moratorium. Our shrimp is a captured uh, population and it exists uh, uniquely in the Gulf of Maine and that is if you look at the map the big map you'd think it's open to the open ocean out there but in fact it's not it is closed by George's Bank on the southern end and for the rest of the world's shrimp to get into the Gulf of Maine they have to come across the Gulf Stream and swim over George's Bank and they ain't gonna do it mm. and if we uh, push our shrimp population to a point where it can't resustain itself, ain't coming back. So no shrimps this year, and ain't they tasty is most of what people know about shrimp. So speaking of, uh, you know, things is changing, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and uh, Atmospheric Administration, has decided to stop printing government charts. Yeah, we, I, I'm pretty sure we did mention this last last month too, but yes, it's... Not uh, sure if we did or not, but... The government is going to stop printing charts, and, and maybe the ones that I've got under the couch cushions are now going to be valuable antiques. Uh, now, uh, there are commercial places that are still going to print charts, the map tech people, for instance, the chart kits and all that. Um, you can now navigate. We now navigate up and down the East Coast of North America well, with an iPhone. Don't say much. we there, white man. Yeah, so it's the truth, though, and it, it alarms me a little bit. All commercial mariners are, uh, by law, you have to carry a paper chart, and every mariner ought to carry a paper chart. But I found myself on boat deliveries without them every once in a while, and that's nuts. So uh, the government's not going to print them anymore, but they're still going to be out there. Yeah. Uh, another little... Uh, uh, thing they have is chart booklets, but as they point out here, there's uh, matters of scale. You can't pull back and get the big picture, and some of these little chart booklets don't even have a compass rose on every page. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe not as much information as you want. Mm. Uh, tricky business. Yeah. Especially Here's a good one from our friends at the uh, Front Street Shipyard down in Belfast, uh, and they are going gangbusters down there. I think the business model is great. They're going for the big boats. And... Uh, there is a lot of work and money there. They have just formed a uh, partnership with, uh, oh, we'll get to the name of these guys in just a minute, uh, 
Mattingly from uh, Trefoil Marine, and they are going to build catamaran patrol craft for security in uh, the world's harbors. Yeah, fast patrol. Too. 50 knot patrol craft. They're going to mount weapons. They're going to be very uh, electronically enhanced, and they're going to also be very pricey. But apparently there's a great need for these, and they're talking about pumping out uh, a couple of dozen of these a year starting this spring and possibly hiring 10 to 12 new people to do so. They've got 100-odd people working down there now. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, same people, Trefoil Marine, is also uh, uh, retaining Front Street Shipyard, who uh, the two principals there have been doing business for years and all kinds of different incarnations. They're also going to build... Uh, Three water taxis and a 45-foot limousine boat for use in the 215 uh, Pan American Games in Toronto, among other projects. Huh. So, We'll have to see if we can get ourselves a, a, a little perk and have a ride on one of those fast boats. You know, it'd be a fun trip. Probably take about, what, four minutes? Well, uh, like I say, uh, I like cat. I'm a new fan of catamarans. I got a little sailing <laughs> catamaran, a fifty knot cat. That gets ever since that uh, catamaran April Fool's lobster boat thing. You've been a fan. Of yeah. Well, I like I say, found one on the side of the road and have learned to love it. Um, we talked to a fellow named Franklin Pierce uh, a few yes. years back. Yeah, and, local and, boy turned good. Yeah, he's an underwater archaeologist, and uh, he told us on a uh, boat talk uh, issue a while back about. Uh, some prehistoric tools that were found on a shallow spot in the mouth of Bass Harbor in a scallop drag. Mm -hmm. And Alan and I held the stone adze in our hands, and we're both woodworkers, and we both got chills yeah. uh, holding this thing. Looks like a rock, but it ain't. Yeah, you, you fit it in your hand just right, it's an amazing tool. It fits yeah. perfectly in the palm of your hand and has a very nice, sharp edge at the other end. One of my little uh, favorites uh, comes through the library is the Maine Archaeological Society Bulletin, and in this... Uh, uh, fall 2013, three prehistoric lithic tools recovered by fishermen off the main coast, Franklin Price and Arthur Spees. There's more more of the same, and they also reference the uh, tools that we talked about found off of Bass Harbor. If you ever come across Maine Archaeological Society Bulletin, you could Google it or find it at the library. It's a good one. Yeah. All right. Got uh, one more for you, and uh, this one blew me away. I saw it on Entertainment Tonight. Really? A boat story. Huh. And it was about uh, the Bay of Funday, and it blew me away. The Bay of Funday is now the hottest surf spot in the world. Whoa, yeah. I've seen that title board come in. You're yeah. Right. It's, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, up <laughs> to uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, which is you drive by it on the Trans-Canada, you wouldn't see it as a seaport. It's way up the Petticodiac River, and it's uh, marsh flatlands up there, okay? And uh, it's not, you know, it's not a uh, real dramatic piece of land. So but they're surfing up the river or the, the bay? They surf up the river. Okay. And uh, you come up the Petticodiac River. Uh, in 2010, they took out a dam across the causeway. And this has enhanced the tidal bore, which comes up that river. And as the tide funnels up into the little tiny uh, end of the river there, it makes a standing wave. And it goes for 29 kilometers is the new record. Two guys from, uh, 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 you know, uh, California came out this fall and surfed 29 miles. They did it uh, standing up, sitting down, uh, laying down. And they said it is a tricky piece of water. Okay, very, very powerful. Um, and chocolate brown, full of silt, a little bit polluted, and uh, death rocks right next to he says. He says, we've been doing this our whole lives, and, and it was all we could handle. Um, but people have been flocking to the Petticodiac River, and there's one guy, uh, Melvin Perez, a local fellow. He claims a new record. He's been... 
He surfed the wave 40 times as of Christmas or so. He claims the uh, number record. And Melvin puts a uh, good little uh, note on it, too. He says, look, he says, uh, if you get the wave, it's great. But if you miss it, it's not like you wait for the next one. You have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's the leading edge of the tidal bore. If you missed it, you have yeah. to stay on the edge of that wave. Yeah. And again, uh, the newest hot surf spot in the world, Petticodiac River, Moncton, New Brunswick. Hmm. Go figure. Wonder if you can catch it going back out too. Good question. Yeah. Good question. That's most of what I got. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back to shrimp then again too. Um, the Natural Resources D- Defense Council, the the federal outfit. Um, is pushing for what we've been talking about for a long time and is supporting local marine fisheries. Uh, turns out that um, the you, when you buy a can of tuna fish now, you see that dolphin safe sign on the side of it. That's um, because they've passed the, uh, a law that a fish caught should be caught in a sustainable or, or a, at least a... Um, a, a Friendly way to marine mammals. We're trying to bring man, man lobster that way now. Right. Well, um, it, supposedly the law also says that fish imported from foreign countries also have to uh, up stand by this this rule too. And uh, they're not. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> um, it's just being let go slack. So the Marine Defense, the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. Uh, go to that website and check it out. They're starting a petition to uh, pressure our legislators to uh, stand by the word and make sure that that law is enforced and that um, all these marine mammals aren't just getting um, turned into bycatch. Um, kind of like making sausage. Don't know how close you want to look at that. You know. Well, we can try to make it better. Just letting yes. it go slack is... is uh, but I guess the point would be that it's kind of... Uh, you would have to just figure mm-hmm. that there are a lot of bad things going on. Fishery practices worldwide. Right, right. Yeah. Well, basically, what we're trying to say is uh, try to try to shop local when it comes to seafood here. Yeah. And uh, this little side thing too. I I was uh, as you were saying with shrimp. Um, really like shrimp, so I bought some frozen shrimp and was trying to. Uh, buy local as I could, and the the bag said North American shrimp. So I. I bought that two-pound bag and brought it home, and uh, while I was uh, cooking half of it, I turned down in the very bottom corner. It says, product of Vietnam farm-raised. Neat. Yeah. Wow. North American shrimp. Little ones Vietnam. or big ones? Big ones. They I were think. big ones, yeah. 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 They ain't right anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they broil a lot easier than the small ones. There you go. <laughs> so uh, that is uh, the last thing, except for... Um, Bangor Daily News, and I'll let people look at this up in the Bangor Daily News. The BDN um, has an article on dead mud. I hadn't heard that term before now, but it's, I guess it's uh, pretty easy to understand what's happening with the uh, ocean acidification and uh, uh, green crabs probably also, too. Um, a lot of dead mud is turning up in, along the main coast. It has no oxygen in it, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. It's also being uh, acidified. Yeah, because otherwise it's a lively zone. Well, it's kind of it like the be. soil. Yeah, should be. Yeah, the green crab infestation is pulling a lot, a lot of the uh, plants out that grow in these mudflats too, and they're um, the plants are part of the ecology that keeps it it's, viable. It's not just our constitution that has a genius for checks and balances; it's nature as well. And if you mess up the little balances, I'm thinking the checks, uh, you know, 
get right out of control mm-hmm. fairly easily. And uh, the little ice storm we just had with the hurting it put on our woods, you know. Let's imagine an early spring and then another storm and, uh, you know, some uh, uh, not healthy trees and then a bug comes. I mean, it gets out of control fast. Yep. So. Yep. so, anyway, uh, check out the Bangor Daily News for uh, information on dead mud. And that brings us up to Hank Halstead, I believe. All right. We are doing boat talk this morning, and we love doing it. And we've been looking forward to talking to our friend Hank Halstead for years. Yep. This is- and... Uh, it's a call-in show, too. Uh, anybody else would like to contribute, we could write down this number, one 625 9378 This is Boat Talk on Community Radio, WERU. And let's see if Hank is there. Good morning, Hank. Are you with us? Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Alan. How are you guys today? Oh, we're doing well. Great, Hank. Welcome to Boat Talk, Hank. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. And, yeah, thanks for uh, having me aboard. Hank, Allen, and I all met at the Hinkley Company back in the mid-'80s. And, uh, you know, we've all since uh, gone off in other directions. And uh, Hank is now uh, principal of Northrop Johnson, a uh, yacht brokerage down in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, among other places around the world. Hank, we we got uh, what we call the boat talk question. It works for just about everybody. Uh, what happened to you when you was a kid messed you all up about boats? You was born that way. Uh-huh. It's basically so. Didn't have any chance to fall on my head. I was sort of dropped in the water. Um, uh, the day I was born, we were actually out cruising on a little on a Hinkley 34 in those days and sailing from Connecticut to Long Island every weekend. And my mom started screaming for pickles and ice cream one morning in August. The old man had to roll like heck. Rode her ashore, borrowed a car, drove into New York City, and uh, that's where I got born. So you might say it's in my blood. <laughs> I would say so. And got to grow up with a boat in the family. It was, well, yeah, we sort of, pretty amazing in those days, actually, because they spent three nights a week on a Hinkley 34 with two cabins, raised three kids. I think it had about 10 gallons of pumped cold water. Some of my earliest memories are sitting there tiny in the dinghy watching these rusty ice tongs come down and lift these huge things of ice up aboard. It was pretty rudimentary. When you really look back at that, I guess it's my mom who gets the credit because she put up with a lot, huh? Mm. Hank, uh, if your dad was spending so much time on his boat, can't we identify that as one of his, that's his happy spot, right? Oh, without a doubt. And isn't that why we work in boats? You know what? How lucky are we when you really cut to the chase? I mean, we could be, I don't know, there's a lot of things I could be doing, but sitting here in Newport looking out across the harbor, pretty much just about where I belong. Yeah. yeah. What, was your, what was your dad's business? He yeah. actually worked for Colgate Palmolive. Yeah. Uh, he was purchasing agent for those guys. He commuted five days a week on the, on the train into Manhattan. Sitting on the train. Off with three nights a week, uh, sleeping on his boat. Sitting on the train, thinking about the boat. Exactly the case. Yeah. And, uh, geez, they tried to get me to follow that route, gave me the willies. Um, so I ended up, as you know, living with you guys in Maine for 15 years and pretty much always on the coast except for a 12-year stint in Colorado way, way back. And, again, we... Uh 
you know, I kind of think of it as a uh, effort not to grow up and join the real world, you know, and, and uh, it's a not just a job and an adventure as well. Every day of my life. I mean, it is virtually, I can't think of anything else that I was really cut out to do. And the good news here is I still get to do a ton of failing, um, get to make a reasonable living barefoot. Um, hey, and uh, yeah, get to eat a fair share of salt through the course of the year in various oceans of the world. Um, it's a whole lot of fun each and every day. And I, frankly, I think I might be otherwise unemployable. I can't imagine <laughs> what I'd do. The uh, allure of the sea, of course, is, you know, the basic of the whole boat talk uh, uh, thing. But um, I call it church, Hank. Uh, what is it that, that uh, is so compelling uh, from your point of view out there in the big blue? What's the big blue mean to you? <coughs> big blue means to me being far at sea where the closest land is uh, six miles down. Um, I've been able, been fortunate enough to do a lot of single-handed sailing, still do a lot of double-handed sailing, and there's just there's nothing nicer than consecutive days spent offshore with the elements. The sun comes up in the morning, goes down at night, stars come up, they go down, you just, you get into this marvelous rhythm of living with the elements. Um, and the good voyages, when I got time, I still shoot stars and do some real navigation. And yeah, it is just it, it takes you back to the rudiments, and it's pretty elemental living. Very much the antithesis of what's going on these days with everybody being sort of plugged in, doing texting and blah, 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 being... It's, for me, unconnected is highly sacred space and becoming more so on you guys. It takes a day or so to... Uh uh, shed the real world when you go offshore, I find. And, and it also takes a day or so when you get home, everything looks kind of stupid. And then after a day or so, it looks right again, you know. Um, you find that as well? It is amazing to me, you know, how much baggage I can carry in my head as I head offshore. And it's even more marvelous how quickly you shed it. And how it actually, as you say, when you get back ashore, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of peace that just sort of sticks with you until you build up that baggage trust again, you know? It's an elemental place that uh, has its own attraction, but it's also a place that rewards uh, good behavior, you know? You can always be learning. Uh, seamanship is uh, like a trade, you know? If you're doing it right, you can always uh, learn a new trick of the trade, and it's, it's uh, just in inherently rewarding, too, don't you, th don't you think? Oh, yeah. No, it's a, when you say elemental, it's astounding to me, and particularly you know, sailing shorthanded. I, I venture to say I never act with such deliberation as when I'm sailing alone on a boat out of sight of land. Um, it leaves you marvelously responsible for each and every one of your actions. Um, one hand for the ship, you betcha. Um you know what they say about the guys that uh, <clears throat> they, they find floating who fell overboard, or I guess, <laughs> and there, this is it's sort of a funny one, because there, I was one of the last ones to grow up enough to use safety harnesses quite enough. Remember, there's an old guy, you probably remember, Francis Stokes was one of the very early single-handers. <laughs> I don't know if I can say this on the radio, but Francis and I weren't very often, you know, we 
was sort of the last to hook on. He looked at me one day and said, you know, it's very likely that my last words on this planet will be, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I worry about. Yeah. (laughs) Watching the boat go away some night. Yeah. Yeah. There's a large number of uh, men found have fallen overboard that are found with their flies open. Yep. Yeah. Now, let's talk about single-handed sailing. You uh, do a lot of it, and you have won the Bermuda 1-2 race, uh, among other things, uh, which you sail down single-handed and come back with a, uh, another person. That's nuts, uh, sailing by yourself in the middle of the ocean, especially racing to drive a boat like that. It certainly puts you in charge of your world and responsible for everything that happens. <laughs> But uh, as challenging as it is, and it is, um, you know, the the race to Bermuda is uh, basically a hundred-hour sprint, and the guys who can stay awake the longest and stick to it and keep their focus sharpest are the guys that win. I was lucky to do it twice and win it twice. Um, way back when, back in my youth, back in the early '90s, um, and it is uh, that you know. There just aren't words for it. It is. It takes sailing to the very highest levels of the sport because you are responsible for everything that happens. You drive yourself to and beyond the point of exhaustion, and it really puts you into another sort of kind of awareness. Um, where you know, boy, it's hard to describe the exhaustion. I guess after my first race, I ran into some friends down there. They took me out to dinner, and I was so tired, I kept falling asleep while I was talking, and I'd, I'd sort of switch into my dream and give them about two paragraphs out of my dream and then wake <laughs> up again and leave these guys just so confused. Mm. <laughs> but uh, no, it truly, uh, you push, and then you push a little harder, but you always have to keep watching for your limits. And I did have, you know, I had one circumstance in that first race on the Hinkley. It was blowing about 35, and I still had the spinnaker up, and I had to get it down. And the boat wasn't doing so well at steering itself because it was completely overpowered. And I sort of had to fight my way to the foredeck, and I tried to pull the spinnaker down, and the bucket just wouldn't move. There was so much pressure in it. I had to quick hook up a block and uh, lead a block to the windlass. It actually took the power of the windlass to get the sock down over the spinnaker. Wow. Good thinking. Only did, only did a little bit of damage to the aft tow rail, but uh, that was after being awake and steering for about 30 hours. Good news was they won the race. Um, but, yeah, we pushed it in those days. I don't think I'd do that anymore. That's a good little trick of the trade right there, the windlass. I like that. Um Winning a race, uh, people, I'm thinking, uh, don't just happen to win races. Uh, what's the difference between winning a race and just showing up? Focus. Yeah. Never let up. Um, here's an interesting one that I've used on people in the in the crude Bermuda race. And the fact of the matter is, okay, this is a 600-mile race to Bermuda, roughly. 100-hour um, race at six knots. I'd venture to say if you take one fat guy from the leeward side of the boat and you make him sleep on the windward side of the boat, it'll probably make a difference of maybe two one-hundredths of a knot. Um, frankly, two one-hundredths of a knot in the Bermuda race is 20 minutes. In the top five places of that 
grace are always within that same 20 minutes. Hmm. If you distill this back down to the rudiments, it means there are only probably two entities on this planet that really can appreciate two one-hundredths of a knot, one being ants and the other one being sailors. Yeah. Details, right? Detail and drive. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that was John Marshall's snowflake theory. You know, each one, they're beautiful, they're unique, they're tiny, and you can barely focus on them. Yeah. Pile them up, and you get a heart attack shovel on them. Hank, we all met at the Hinckley Company back in the mid-'80s. Um, uh, when I got there, Henry Hinckley was, had just uh, gone off. You worked for him for a little while. Uh, tell us something about Henry, the real Henry Hinckley. You know, in truth, you know, I was well acquainted with Henry, but uh, actually Steve Kaiser, one of our associates there, he was, he was Henry's captain. Um, I, just, I sort of knew him. We, we were well acquainted, but I never really worked with him. He was a... I can say he was a gruff old guy who knew exactly how it ought to happen. He was an autocrat. And when Henry said jump, people would uh, answer on the way down. Um, <laughs> autocrat, I like that. <laughs> but he was just very funny. I mean, I think one of his priceless lines that has withstood the test of time, people would come in, look around, say, geez, Mr. Hinkley, it's quite an operation. How many how many people you got working there? Yeah, I've heard this Wouldn't one. Wouldn't miss a beat. He'd say, oh, about half. Yeah, <laughs> that went over well with the workers. <laughs> oh, without, oh, yeah. Well, we were all some of them. But no, he was, you know, he's a guy who really he made a mark in, in the yachting business. And he did it not only with design when he came out. You know, it wasn't the B-40 wasn't his design. That was a consortium of eight really smart boat owners who said they wanted the best built for him. But they fundamentally took him to trip design. They resolved it between, I guess, the nine of them at that point. But then for him to stop his production line, take on this entirely new material, and really do that level of innovation, and when you get down to it, that's the core of the American spirit. That's what's driven our industry through the roof at all turns. He was a real pioneer that way, and that really is what, you know, his wooden boats were good, um, but not the very best in the world. As soon as he got into fiberglass, he's, he really was, you know, he was cutting new cloth. And that was really to be admired. The uh, Hinkley Bermuda 40 is why I'm sitting here this morning, Hank. Uh, we lucked into a little uh, uh, wooden uh, sailboat when we were kids, fixed it up in the barn, watched it leak, kept it out to Cousins Island down in Casco Bay, sailed around. We're into a handy boat one day, and there was a Hinkley at the dock, and we were, oh, my God. And the people on the B-40 saw a boat full of boys, and they had us aboard for peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And I never forgot that, mm-hmm. you know. I'll be doing that, um, you still doing the peanut butter and banana? Oh, geez. Uh, like I say, and, and go for a ride on a B-40 anytime anybody would have me. So. But that's how, that's how I got my connection uh, to the Hinkley Company. And Hank, uh, you mentioned that uh, Henry was a designer, too, which is true. He, he actually was an engineer from Cornell when he came out of school. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that or, this or not, but he, he designed the 34 that you spent your first years on. That was a Henry Hinkley design. Yeah, um, yeah that's, uh, I wasn't aware that that was his boat. But, yep. uh, I wouldn't doubt it. She was actually, <laughs> excuse me, there was, uh, she was a little fractional rig and actually a great sailing boat. The uh, Hinkley Company, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, all right. Uh, 
what happened, uh, you may not be aware of this either, uh, later on the 34s were redesigned into a 36, and the the uh, Hinkley 36 was what Henry was actually starting to make first in fiberglass. He started to make a plug for the 36 when the uh, the group the, called the Oldak Group who ordered the eight original B-40s came along, and the 36 project went on the back burner. So he was that 36, did it have a bit of a little higher house? Yes, it had, had a, step, a step cabin, that's right. The 36. I've seen a couple of those. Uh, yeah, they're sweet boats, actually. They really are. Yeah, he actually had one built for himself. One of those was the very first Jan that Henry had made for himself. When I landed at the Hinkley Company, I ended up on the production line, and I spent about two years there, and I kept looking down at the dock where all the real boats were with actual people on them, you know, and got myself into the service department. You were a service manager there, and uh, that is direct and repair of boats. Um, you learn a lot about boats by fixing them, don't you? Don't you? You know, it's, and it's funny because I had been a delivery captain for years prior to that. So, basically, I was pretty good at breaking them, too. <laughs> and it was actually a very good experience. Um, and it does. Being service manager and dealing with all of the problems that consistently happen on both is some of the best training you'll ever get, even when you go 360 and go back out again as a seaman. Um. I learned a ton there looking at how you guys put these boats together and held the, held the boats together. Um, it's amazing what a good education being a service manager is because you're sort of thinking on your feet and you're answering questions as they come to you. It's a really fun thing to do. Having been a, um, like, say, a delivery captain, a, a charter captain, a service manager, uh, being a boat broker after that, that's, that's quite a trifecta. It was a lot of fun. Actually, one of the things I miss a lot now, because you know, my job sort of evolved, as you're aware, you know, from we did broker, we did the service, then we did the brokerage, and also had a, a good hand in selling a lot of new boats and got a lot of input on some of the design as we would get the boats built. That too is an awful lot of fun to apply your the knowledge, you know, just how you live at sea, and get to have a little input on how boaters. New boats are designed and you know, deal with some of the problems that arise when you are at sea. One of the, uh, I'm sorry. One of the uh, themes that we like to uh, reiterate on Boat Talk is that, uh, well, there's a couple. One, you ain't got time to make all those mistakes yourself, so you got to profit from the uh, mistakes of other people. But also um, the whole boating thing's about dreams. You know, we try to uh, ascribe uh, great things and, and some stupid things that happen around boats to dreams, but it's about dreams, uh, isn't it? Absolutely, unequivocally true. I mean, here I run a reasonably successful yacht brokerage down here in Newport, and we got boats listed all over the world. And I hate to, I'm going to say this on the radio. There is absolutely no financial sense to any of this. <laughs> this is entirely a business of passion and dream. But then again, what's life? Life is all about, if life ain't about passion and dream, you might say that you ain't living it. With mm -hmm. thinking of your dad sitting on the train again, thinking about the boat. Yeah. You know? Absolutely the case. Yeah. But the only, you know, the only sad thing for me is you go into any kind of hard times and when there isn't plenty of money around, this is certainly the money that drives up quickest because 
guess, in many ways, and in a very absolute sense of the term, I'm a dream merchant. Only one problem with that is my stock and trade is dreamers. <laughs> hmm. um, I consider that an asset because, in truth, it is at the end of the day what gives life value. Anything besides scale and detail different between the guy dreaming of a dinghy or a mega yacht? You know what? I, and this is really another, it's another magnificent oxymoron. You know, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time at the helm nowadays of 150, 200 foot boats on the race course, which is pretty exciting. Put your heart in your throat. But you know, the bigger the boat, the farther you are from the water. Yeah. If you want to go sailing, Take out a hair shelf there, dough dish, and you'll be having the time of your life, and you will really be sailing. Mm-hmm. Magnificent 30. I was lucky enough to spend 10 months on a Concordia yawl when I was about 23, 24 years old. Those boats ain't fast. Five and three quarters of knots while you're ripping right along. But darn, you're sailing. You know, you're uh, three feet from the water, and you are involved deep in the spirit of and of the feedback loop, we call it. And again, let's simplify it down to butt boat paddle. We got a kayaker sitting at the end of the table here, you know. Um, mm-hmm. About as pure as it gets. There you go. Well, basically, the feedback is salt in your face. <laughs> again, that means that you are into the sport. Just read a um, description of a uh, um, big boat uh, race where there were computers everywhere. And, and uh, it was Tom Jackson from Wooden Boat Magazine talking about how the computers were facing in every direction. They even had uh, 3D modeling of the Gulf Stream as they crossed it. And he looked down, uh, looked up, and at one point, everybody's head was in a computer screen. There was no doubt. Nobody looking up, sailing the boat, looking at the fog, looking at the water. Everybody had their head in the screen. He thought it was just slightly surreal. Now these big boats, Hank. They um, uh, let's let's imagine two two kinds of big boats. Uh, a modern uh, modern rig like Scheherazade, for instance, one hundred and fifty four feet, uh, a yawl, a big main, a big jib, uh, a little mizzen. Some of these uh, boats are very traditional, though, with lots of sails. Uh, Schooner uh, topsail rigs, uh, whatever, uh, but lots and lots of sails, right? Two absolutely different kettles of fish. I've yeah. been lucky enough to sit at the helm of Scheherazade. I got to drive her around at the Tupriat Regatta in Palma eight or nine years ago. And also got to sail, actually, I did a New York Yacht Club cruise aboard the 1914 Hershoff Schooner Marriott. Uh, Marriott, we sailed with 31 cadets aboard. Huh. And and there was, you know, <laughs> I think every one of their names was uh, Andy Billy. <laughs> no electric winches. Um, actually, she had two. Ooh. That was it. But, I mean, she was literally, you know, you, we set the main top before we left the mooring in camp, you know, in camp in any harbor we left. Um, and, I mean, it, it was just remarkably hands-on, and the choreography on that boat was just, it was magic. Uh, likewise, I sailed a bit on Eleonora, another Hershoff boat. And, you know, when you go by these boats at nighttime with the lights on, the rigging, and these boats are literally raining, running rigging. Yeah, Halyard and uh, Lazy Jacks and this, that, and the other. There's a lot of line, a lot of windage just in line. 
on the other hand, um, driving some of these Perini navvies around the track, 100, you know, what's 56 meters, 150 feet, something like that, um, everything is on a captive reel winch. Uh, these things have really revolutionized sailing. They're really right out of the fishing industry. Um, but everything, what the, big, the biggest problem there is the crowd at the console in front of my helm. Because when you're easing the general to, to tack and easing the space, well, unless it takes five or six guys with their hands on the levers, meantime you're trying to wedge yourself in the middle of just, please, can I hold on the steering wheel for a minute, guys? <laughs> it gets pretty outrageous. Funny thing is, in big boats, and as we, you know, more and more we take them out on the racetrack, um, it's a little spooky. I mean, it takes for normal, normal port starboard tack situation. Um, it takes us on a Perini Navy 150 footer. It takes two minutes not to tack. It takes two minutes just to roll the sails and head off wind. At 10 knots, 90 seconds is a quarter mile. Hmm. Which means you're talking a half a mile just to turn or stop. So when you drive these things, it's real exciting and your heart lives in your throat. But you got to be, if you're not a half a mile ahead of yourself, you will be in trouble. And again, um, powerful, powerful forces on all those sails and lines. Huge forces. You know, yeah. You're talking, you know, 500 ton, ton vessels drive on it. 10 to 15 knots. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. However, it's even more exciting to get in a laser and go eat some salt. Yep. Now, one, uh, again, let's go right back to the mega yachts just for a second here. One um, thing I'd like to point out with these mega yachts, you don't just buy a boat. You buy a whole institution. You need crew. You need infrastructure. You uh, when, when you kind of buy a yacht, you're almost buying a little piece of a na personal navy when you get right down to it. Not without a doubt, you are. I mean, it's funny. I mean, on most of these boats, you will have a 120 foot spirit of tradition. You know, a boat like your on. You'll have uh, you know, eight in crew, more or less, full time. Um, you've got a, a chef. You've got a stewardess. You've got a first mate, second mate, deckhand. Full time. This is the most important guy on the boat. Full time engineer. Uh, then the captain, and as the boats get bigger, the captain's job gets farther and farther away from actually driving the boat. Uh, on a 500-ton boat, fully half his job is pushing papers. Hmm. Um, yeah, it is. And between you know, having your own crew for when you're normally cruising or when the boat's on charter is one thing. When you take a boat like that in a regatta, and they're virtually now doing float drops on their spinnakers on 160-foot boats. They'll have another. They'll bring another ten professionals aboard and another twenty guests. Uh, I'm going back actually way back now, 2001 on Victoria Strathairn, which is not a huge boat by today's standards. It's only 140 feet. Uh, we got through Antigua Classics, and the owner looked at me, and I wasn't even focused on this. Couldn't drive on the boat. And Alistair looked and said, "You know, hey, we've had 55 people aboard all week." I think we made 1,500 sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, and big boats, too, they drink up a whole crowd of people. Mm. But you're right. It's a Navy. 
Yeah, interesting. It's a whole different world. Now, yeah. one place one can see a lot of these big boats all at one time is in the bucket regatta, and uh, you had a lot to do with that. Why don't you talk about that? <laughs> That's a fun event. Um, it really started out in Nantucket with Nelson Doubleday and a couple guys sitting in 21 Federal, <clears throat> one of the elegant watering holes on the uh, waterfront in Nantucket. You know, they got into a bit of a rum squall and started talking bragging rights. The news boat was fastest. Nelson grabbed this, you know, it was a wine bucket where they had some Chardonnay in there. He said, well, let's we'll race you in the morning. We'll call it the Nantucket Bucket. And here it is. <clears throat> they went out the next day, six boats, raced around Nantucket Sound. I think their recollection is foggy as to who actually won, but they had a heck of a good day. And that became the first Nantucket Bucket. Um, excuse me, about in the early 90s, my two partners, Tim Lockridge and Ian Craddock, set up the first St. Bart's Bucket, and they got a few of the mega yachts of the day, 100 footers, got them together, and they would uh, do a bit of a rendezvous, play golf on one island, then sail over to St. Bart's. One year, they actually had a Le Mans start. They had about 600 footers out in the anchorage. And the rules were you had to take your tender ashore. The first mate or the most likely guy had to toss off a daiquiri and then swim back to the boat. Once they got there, the boats had to get underway without using their engine, <clears throat> sail around back to the anchorage around the island, uh, drop their anchor, put someone, put the skipper or owner in the tender and run them back ashore to go claim the prize. <laughs> uh, one might look they only did that once for a very good reason because they forgot that during the, while they're going around the island the anchorage filled up with a bunch of little boats oh no nobody got run over but Mr. Cabani uh, the owner of uh, I can't I'm blanking out the name of his boat um, he ended up on the tender that tender hit the beach so fast he tumbled right out rolled around the sand and said I'll take my prize please <laughs> Well, things have gotten a lot safer since then, and it's been necessary. That's always been a rollicking and fun event. In those days, there were five to six boats every year between 2004 and now. You know, now we got almost 40 boats. A couple of years ago, we did have 40 boats for the starting line, and these are boats between 100 and 300 feet long, racing hell-bent for leather around the island. Mm-hmm. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Is there a website and for people? we've learned to be safe. Is there a website for people to see pictures of that, Hank? Oh, yeah. That's bucketregattas.com. There's some amazing photography there. Yeah. I would definitely, I would advise anyone to go and peruse it. Just, uh, you know, I did say we're really the photographers. We provide a photo-rich environment, you might say. We are about three-quarters of the way through Boat Talk this morning. Alan Sprague, Mike Joyce sitting there this morning. Tom Groning from the uh, Working Waterfront uh, paper. And we're talking to our friend Hank Halstead down in Newport, Rhode Island this morning. A uh, life lived around boats. Um, Hank, how'd you end up uh, getting your captain's license, becoming a skipper? Interesting. Um, I had actually... You know, as we discussed, I grew up on boats and sailing around boats, did some ocean racing and all that. But I was torn because I went to school in Colorado and really liked it. So I sort of hunkered down there from 1968 until did a bunch of travel.
traveling and all in South America, but set up a construction business in Colorado. Did pretty good, and it's funny, all at once in 1978, I just got hit with the itch for the ocean. said, geez, this place, I was like, geez, I realized I hadn't been barefoot in two years, and every time I'd go sit down on one of these beautiful mountains, I'd sort of get a thorn in my butt. And it was a little bit like the song about the lemon tree, very pretty but impossible to eat. I just got hit hard with this thing that said, i got to go sailing. In a three-month time, I sold my business for not much and got a job for 75 bucks a week running a Swan 43. Um, I ended up, um, ran that boat for a year and then quickly got into the delivery business while I was doing that. I actually met George Hinckley, Henry Hinckley's brother. He had a nice B-40 named Hahnemann. Uh, George and I got along pretty well. He ended up putting me for a job, <clears throat> putting me forward for a job on uh, a Hinkley 43 by the name of Megan J. Megan J. Here we go. Yeah, now called Jubilee, if anybody's interested. And uh, So spring of uh, 1980, you're at the dock in Newport, Rhode Island. you just come back from a charter. A uh, boat needs a little bit of work, and uh, the uh, charter agent sends you some people. Oh, Jesus, that guy. <laughs> yeah, okay, here's a yarn. Interesting one, actually. Um, I sailed in my good friend George Hill, who now owns Weatherly, and he was on a sister ship, Pinkley 43, named Starbright. We'd, I'd finished my Caribbean charter season. It was in the spring of, I think it's 1st uh, of May, 1980, something like that. George had finished his season, so we took these two boats and we cruised side by each for about a month. From Martinique, ended up here in Newport. We're here for, they beat me. We had a uh, race from Bermuda to here, but we stopped in the Gulf Stream for a birthday party, so George beat me in by about four hours. That was on a Friday night, I think. So we got in after customs uh, closed, and I guess it passed the statute of limitations, so I could say, well, we didn't pay much attention to the quarantine thing because their boat was all tied up, pretty good up and all that, and they were off the bar. So we put our trash all in a big bag and put ribbons and bows on the bag and flipped it into their cockpit with a sign that said, winner takes all. <laughs> went and found them at the bar and had a great time. Cleared customs the next morning, walked out Bannister's Wharf, and I was just walking in from customs, and my friend Paul McCaffrey, uh, local charter broker from McMichael's. said, hey, Henry, uh, good to see you. Uh, you want a charter to go to Bermuda? I said, oh, you know, they looked at him like he had two heads. I'm like, Paul, oh, I've been here for like eight hours. Uh, but sure, why not? We'll hook it up if the people are responsible and they want to go to Bermuda. I'd love to sail back to Bermuda. So one thing led to another. Actually, that day, that night, we had a picnic ashore, and then George and I decided to go sail to the tall ships up in Boston, which we did in the two boats. McCaffrey reached me up in Boston and said, well, let's, um, this guy may want to do a charter with you, Hank. What's the exact time and date of your birth? <laughs> what, does that have, what does that have to do with the price of beans? And he said, well, they're interested. I said, oh, geez, okay. But these guys, whoever they are, they must be okay. They're interested in astrology. I told them. 9.41 a.m. in Manhattan, blah, blah, blah. Um, and tell them, by the way, Paul, tell them we'll get along. It sounds like he's lined up pretty good. So uh, 
I sailed back from Boston when I arrived. Paul said, fine, you got a deal. You're going to go sail into Bermuda. I said, well, give me a few days, because I actually I had to replace every wire in the mat. The, uh, starting to see some cracks in the sledge fittings, and the last thing I want to do is drop a mast on someone's head. Um, so I rigged the boat. We set up the date, departure date. These guys, everything's locked and loaded. We're ready to go. These guys show up on the dock. Funny thing about a charter business, you sort of never know who's coming. Um, so someone comes down and picks you. And who was it? One, four people showed up on the dock. Um, four sort of younger people, another guy a little bit older than me. Now they had these sort of funny sundial T-shirts on with feathers and all this. So, hmm, that's pretty cool. One of them had a guitar. And they come aboard. We're moving all in. And... I'm going through, and there's this the older guy. He may be 40-ish. I was all of about 30, and these other kids were mid-20s. Um, he was sort of running the show, but not he alluded to not being much of a sailor, and he wanted to be the cook. And he had this little satchel of food. It looked like a little black doctor's bag, and it was full of beans and rice and all this stuff. I'm like, so you can be the cook, and that's food, huh? Oh, yeah. So, well, mind if I go out and fill in around the edge a little bit? So he said, oh, yes, no problem. And we, uh, before we left, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I'm glad you got all those grains out. You know, it's funny. I do a lot of that. I have a Japanese girl. I, I got a, no, I started with the chopsticks. I said, yeah, I got some chopsticks, too. He said, yeah, I, he said he brought his own chopstick. I said, no kidding. Well, yeah, my, Jap- my girlfriend's Japanese. He looks at me and he goes, yeah, my girlfriend's Japanese, too. Guy keeps on dropping these hints. Little did I know, to cutting to the chase, it turns out this guy is John Lennon. I just knew his name was John. It's one of the most famous men on the planet. I guess he was, and, you know, just goes to show quite how obtuse I am. I didn't even recognize the guy. Um, one major reason, he wasn't eight feet tall. He was only about 5'7". But we're walking around the boat, and he kept dropping these hints, and I just wasn't getting it. You know, I had one of those world citizenship flags hanging from my sweater. He looks up, and he goes, oh, those guys sent me one of their passports. I'm like, Holy cow, I did. I did. I paid five bucks for mine. Um, but one thing led to another, and it's finally, just about before we headed off to Bermuda, I looked at my friend McCaffrey and walked out the dock and said, Henry, I mean, Paul, what'd you, what'd you say if I said, I think I might have John Lennon on my boat? McCaffrey goes, I tell you what I always tell you, Henry, you're full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Hank, um, oh, uh, we have a phone call, so I'm going to ask you to. Put that on hold for a minute, and we'll go to this quick phone call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. How are you, Alan? Hi. This is Peter, right? Yes. Peter, welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah, um, I was interested in your guest. Yes, we we would, about it. we would like to get. We only have about five minutes left, so we'd like to get back to Hank quickly. But Peter, let me put this to you. Um, you've written a book about uh, a boat and I'm, we're thinking about doing a show next month about having animals on boats so if possible we would like to uh, put you off until next month and we can talk longer on that subject okay that'd be very good the, uh, why don't you quickly though tell the for anybody who's interested the name of your book <clears throat> and where people can get it well it's called A, a Sea Dog's Tale T-A-L-E and it can be gotten through Amazon or Kindle. And it's about a skipper key. It was a really remarkable animal. 
Yes, I've read I've read this read the book. It is a very good and it's a very good sea story too. So uh, yes, we'll look forward to talking with you next month on Boat Talk. Okay, Peter Muir, thank you for calling. Okay, let's get back. Still to there, Hank? Hank? Yes. Oh yeah, Hank. Hank, I'm reading a book one day, uh, laying around the shack. Philip Norman's uh, John Lennon, a life, and we get to part where John goes sailing. I'm going, hey, cool, and now he's on a charter boat going to, and he's he's sailing with my friend Hank, and I uh, just blew me away. It's one of the great moments ever reading from the book uh, jacket. It says here. Uh, John was a man of endless contradictions, tough and cynical, hilariously funny, but also naive, vulnerable, and insecure. He was a uh, piece of work. He wrote songs that uh, really were, were naked about himself, especially after he uh, got to Bermuda after uh, your trip there. Yeah. he was. You know what? The guy had the courage to be a real human, I think is what he said. Because, yeah, he was, he was full of himself and humble. He was all of these marvelous contradictions. And the good news for him, I mean, he was, you know, he took this trip for a reason. He was looking for a piece of himself that he had to rediscover. And the good news is the ocean did for him what it does for everybody. It put him to the test and really did. I mean, we sailed through some ugly stuff. The rest of the crew got, you know, these guys, it was pretty rough. So they all got real seasick. John didn't. He He had a stomach of steel. And the one thing I never did to this boat was I never got an autopilot. So here we sail off into a gale, and after driving the boat for two days, I was sort of out of options. And I finally looked at John and said, hey, you got to come and drive this thing, big boy. And he goes, well, uh, excuse me, uh, Hank, I can't do that. I just got these skinny little guitar playing muscle. And I said, John, that ain't the strength I'm looking for. You come on up here and drive this thing. And it was amazing, because it was pretty ugly, and Michael, you know, I mean, the wind was coming from about 140 degrees behind us at this point, with careening off the wave, and a jive would have been pretty close to fatal. It was rough enough. It actually took a Hinkley three-bow dodger and flattened it for the wave. Ooh. It was pretty rough. But this guy, he stood up to it. I sat there with him for about 45 minutes and gave him a little coaching, and he had the feel of it real fast. I went down and passed out as best as a single shorthanded sailor does for about three hours. I was still sort of half there. I would have known if he had screwed up. I came on deck and he was a different man. He was just, he had mastered it. It was perfect. But good news is, yeah, he got a heavy dose of ocean therapy. And it did. It, it centered him up real good, is all you can say. And, he and for me, what a joy to get to spend seven days, ten feet from the genius of the guy. We had a lot of fun. We discovered we had a whole lot to talk about. Too cool. John Lennon, uh, you landed in Bermuda um, early June, June 11th, I guess it was, or so. Uh, he immediately stat- sat down and started writing songs, became the Double Fantasy record, uh, released a couple weeks before John Lennon, of course, was shot dead on the street in New York City six months later in December. Hank Halstead, so great. Talk to you this morning, man. Really fun, you guys. Great to catch up on all of you. Yeah, we only could have done it for another hour or two. Yeah, it could have gone on and on. Thank you, Hank. It's about time for us to say goodbye to the hour has sailed by. Time to make room for Rich Hillsinger coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor and around the world at WERU.org.
Support for WERU comes from...